Hello and welcome to Cinemakers, Amy Heckerling. This is episode 52, Loser from 2000. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Cara Geller-Wegan. And Cara, once again, I need to ask you, what did you get us into on this run of Cinemakers? Because we had such high highs with Fast Times, with Look Who's Talking, with Clueless especially. And now here we are, once again, not only questioning this run of Cinemakers, but questioning whether we should make movies in general. Like as human beings. Yes. Yeah, sorry about that. I had seen this before and I remembered it being really bad. So going into it, I had extremely low expectations and it actually wasn't as bad as I remembered. Wow, okay. And it was interesting to watch it this time around with an eye out for Amy Heckerling and her hand in creating this movie. That's not great and we'll get into it and we'll get into maybe some of the reasons why it's not so great. But like I saw a lot of her and her hand in this and I appreciate appreciated that aspect. Well, I guess the important thing to say before we get too far into this is that this is a movie that was taken away from her, that this was greenlit by studio executives as an R-rated comedy, that this is what she pitched, that's what the, the, the studio greenlit, that's what the executives wanted. New executives came in and were like, nobody wants R-rated comedies, we're going to make this PG-13, take all the teeth out of it, and here we are with a movie that I don't understand really any of. Like, I don't understand why most of what's happening is happening. Like, I understand that Jason Biggs is a fish-out-of-water character going from a Midwest town to the Big Apple and trying to adapt to life there. But for a movie that's ostensibly about him, why do we spend so much time with so many other people where he's just not even, like, thought about? Like, why do we spend so much time with his three roommates or with Mina Suvari or what? Like, it just, is it all of their story? Is it just, like, it feels lost and stuck in between a whole bunch of stories that I don't really care about that I feel like if you choose to focus on any one of the stories, maybe the Mina Suvari one is the most appealing and the one that I would want to see the most, maybe just because I like her the most of all the actors in this movie. I don't know. But, you know, I, I just, I don't, I don't know what's happening here. Um, yeah. I don't know. Mike, what did, what did you think? So I had also seen this before. I like it less this time. The thing is, like, I'm just not a Jason Biggs fan, unfortunately. Like, nothing against him, but, like, I didn't really feel like he could carry this. I like Mina Savari, but she's not in it nearly as much as I expected. I hated the Greg Kinnear character. Like, here's the thing. Like, I'm definitely, like Kara said, I'm sensing this through the heckling lens. And not just that, but, like, a female perspective like the reason i think i got a bad reaction from this film is because men are depicted the way they really are like obnoxious pieces of shit and it was hard to watch like it's hard to go through and be like this is how women see like 99.9 percent of us like all the time like you know like this is just their expectation of us and like rightfully so like that was hard to sort of get past while i was watching this movie and i don't i don't think that's a fault of the film either i think like I don't know if it was intentional but like I don't fault the movie for that I think that's totally justified or valid but the rest of this just like there's no cohesion here I would have been fine with Jason Biggs meeting Mina Savari and the two of them just having like this sort of romance modern day kind of thing you know like that kind of aesthetic but like today my favorite thing about this is that it's actually shot in and around New York City not entirely. Actually, most of it was shot in Canada. Oh, well, there goes that. But <laughs> what, what is shot in New York is nice to see. And I do think Biggs and Mina Savari have chemistry when they're together. But, like, the rest of it is just all over the place. And it was hard for me to really 
focus and get past some of its sort of social commentary, which is which is good that it had it in there. But again, it really feels like uh, someone taking someone's vision and trying to sculpt it into something that is like mass marketable and trying to please everybody. And in the process, I think it fails to sort of please me on any level. Yeah. And I, it's my understanding that a lot of that happened in the editing process, even after they had a final cut of the film that they screened for a test audience, they had to edit out a specific scene with regard to the date rape plotline that would have made this film a lot darker and it tested very poorly and they made her cut it out so but they're okay with like relieving in references and the actual drug use of date rape like that's okay we just can't see like a darker version of that well i just feel like without that part that makes it a lot more serious the film like completely loses its teeth and it like loses its perspective and it just feels like who is this about why is this about what is happening here because i would love to see the director's cut of this and see what she was trying to do because i feel like in the way that clueless was this like fantasy world this world that she built like in the exact opposite direction she's built this world which is maybe a lot more like reality but also I feel like this is maybe like a lost heckerling horror movie. Like it could have gone in a very different, it could have had a perspective at all and it would have made it a lot better. But I feel like while I was watching this, I was reminded of how terrifying and like pervasive the threat of being roofied at all times was like in college. And I think that if it had like gone in that direction and maybe it did, who knows? Yeah, this was not a pleasant thing to watch. What's frustrating is that we see the seeds sown by her like again this is very much generalizing but like once again this is a movie where everybody just kind of wants to get laid right like that's something that we've talked about over and over again like jason biggs falls in love mina savari falls in love with her teacher you know we've got jimmy simpson from westworld and zach orth from like wet hot and somebody who i know from i, I wrote down i don't remember i'm not looking i'm not even looking at my notes yet because it's gonna make me angrier that I, I know from something else or he's involved in something else and like they're just they're all trying to get laid but you know through disgusting, deceiving, deceptive ways. But, like, that's something that we've seen in just about every one of her movies, if not every one of her movies. You also said, I think, Cara, that this sort of feels in a way like bizarro clueless, right? Like, the movie that we just spent so much time talking about and gushing about, but this feels like that, but the opposite in every way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what kind of struck me, too, is, like, so the Mina Savari character who's sleeping with her professor, that was, like, the tag at the end of Fast Times for the Phoebe Cates character. Yeah. And this made me feel like it might have been trying to go for some sort of not sequel but maybe some kind of spiritual successor in her mind to like what would a modern day fast times at college feel like where we have like the party dudes on one end then we have you know biggs is totally like rat right like he feels like ratner a lot of the times who is in this movie that's right the actor that played Mark Ratner in Fast Times at Ridgemont High shows up as a doctor. Mm-hmm. And and I think the issue is, like, it might be trying to go for laughs when it shouldn't, like, because it's trying to, like, actually tackle some, like, serious issues and real themes and stuff and like you know like definitely stuff like the date rape the the professor thing the dependency issues and just like the homelessness of Mina Savaris get like what is that I couldn't even track a lot of what was going on with her even so you know there's there's a lot of things wrong here in my mind but there is that sort of germ where I was like okay you know it's almost like this fast times type of sequel thing 
Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't think about it in those terms. I think this is maybe the first movie that we've gotten to in this run of Cinemakers where I kind of wish that it was longer. Like, we talked about how, like, Fast Times could be longer. Like, I would watch a longer Fast Times. I'd obviously watch a longer Clueless. Those movies are great as is. But I feel like having more background and plot and explanation of Mm -hmm. why things are happening and why people are the way they are would have helped here. Yeah, because we're definitely missing a large portion of the Mina Savari character I think yes because there's like this whole thing where she's like trying to get emancipated from her parents but she's already 18 I think I mean maybe this is just a thing that kids do but like I don't understand like one of the first things we see is that she misses the train back after working her night job at that you know nightclub or whatever right and she calls her mom and her mom is basically like hey I'll come pick you up and then she's like no 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 I'm staying at the girls dorm and then just sleeps in Grand Central and maybe that's enough of a character you know explanation that this is somebody who would rather make it on her own than be with her mom or like rely on mom but like it felt to me like we didn't have justification of that yet like it just like that seems like a bold step like the the defining trait the first thing we see about this girl other than she has a job that maybe she shouldn't be working because she kind of seems like i mean i guess she is sleeping with a teacher i don't want to classify people as like good girls or not but like feels like she's like sort of doing things that she doesn't really want to do she's sort of falling into certain kinds of lives yeah but i mean i just thinking back to some of the jobs that like my women friends have when we were in college or around that age and a lot of them were these kind of like weird sex work adjacent jobs like she's working in a strip club as a waitress like a cocktail waitress yeah yeah and like i had a lot of friends that wound up doing things that like were kind of in that general vicinity like a precursor to something darker in a way maybe maybe but just like you know you're young and you don't have enough time to work a full-time job you need to make as much money as you can in as short a period of time as you can and like those are the jobs that pay better but yeah again like if this movie was like actually about her and we got more of that which by the way did you happen to notice her supervisor at that strip club did you notice who that was Twink Kaplan, who played Miss Geist in Clueless, and who is a longtime collaborator of Heckerling, and who also co-executive produced this film with her. Like, that's what blows my mind, is that they seem to have produced this thing on their own, written it, directed it together, and, like, yet how can the studio still manage to just, like, take it away like that? That's why I, would too, would like to see a director's cut and just see, you know, aside from the scene mentioned earlier, how much more this was rearranged and mm-hmm. chopped apart and reorganized. Because it definitely, yeah, not just the Mina Savari character, but a lot of stuff even with Jason Biggs. Like, at one point, you know, he's just supposed to be at the animal hospital living there temporarily. They're like, Which oh, yeah. is bananas. Yeah, which is just bizarre. And then later he does or doesn't move out. I can't tell really because of the way it's shot. Like maybe he was supposed to move out, but they didn't get a location. That's the thing. Like there just doesn't seem to be a lot of follow through with things that are set up. And then there's like stuff that feels like this should be paying off, but like it doesn't feel set up. So like I'm getting a weird vibe from this whole thing. The movie doesn't do itself, at least this cut of the movie doesn't do itself any justice or any service because it's clearly set up as his movie, right? Like we start with him, his going away party. It's his country mouse in the city. It's his, you know, coming of age story. It's his big head on the poster. Yes. But then once we 
get there, he's instantly the least interesting character, and they detour from him to go to Mina Savari and her, you know, relationship with Greg Kinnear, or her at the club and trying to earn a dollar, or her trying to, you know, free herself from her mother, or we go to the three guys, like, just, you know, scamming and just trying to figure everything out. But I feel like why Fast Times works as well as it does, aside from just being better in most, if not every regard, is that it's never set up as one character's movie. Like, it might kind of be Brad, but, like, we're not seeing everything from his perspective. And it's not starting with him getting ready for work. Like, we start at the mall with, like, a whole bunch of people. You know what I mean? Like, if you want to have a story that is a story of, like, this floor on the dorm or, like, this, like, interconnecting lives, like, that's fine. But don't set it up as Jason Biggs' story. Like, we have to already be in New York on the first day of school and we're meeting different groups of people or whatever. And you can have him be the same backstory. Like, he's uh, this new guy from the country who doesn't know anybody. That's fine. But, like, don't show us, like, Dan Aykroyd and his entire family and him dancing with his cousins. And, like, why are you spending so much time setting him up? But also, does he ever say like what he wants to be when he grows up or why he wants to go to NYU because like I know that he gets the full scholarship and that that's what enables him to be at NYU but like people don't just go to NYU like NYU isn't the only college in the world and I don't understand or in New York for that matter right like go someplace else that's a lot cheaper I don't know unless you want to go to film school there or like you know do something specific at NYU like why NYU yeah I don't know what anyone's studying to be honest in this movie well it's one class Greg Kinnear is teaching okay but like that's it yeah we don't see anything else but they're also I think they're just young enough to be like all in you know gen eds and stuff like lower level like it doesn't matter what they are yet they're just taking intro like intro to lit or whatever i mean i totally agree with the whole thing it feels like it's supposed to be jason biggs movie and then it falls apart for him like it then it stops feeling like he's relevant really for a lot of the movie in the opening part like yeah we needed to cut to mina savari and her mom like her them arguing and her being late for the bus or the train in the morning you know and then maybe that will somehow tie into her being late for the train home and making the phone call and all yada yada like that's how it felt like it felt afterwards being like it's missing like all these chunks of people like getting ready to go to school in the morning we're only seeing Jason Biggs and then it stops being his movie exclusively even to the point where at the end where they do do the sort of where are they now we even get them for the three stupid roommates I was like that doesn't feel like they deserve to like I don't care what those characters well, are. Well, no, I mean, to. that has to be there for those guys because they're clearly the worst people in the world. And you need that, you need some sort of payoff that, like, in the end, they're all going to live miserable lives. You know what I mean? Yeah, one guy is like the fall guy for a corporation, and another one has like a botched hair situation. In the moment, I was just like, I just don't feel like the movie warranted like the follow through with them even like or, or like we should have seen their comeuppance on screen or like maybe they were supposed to and it got cut or who knows but like it had the feel like it was being cut short I was having a lot of thoughts and feelings in the scene where Minu Savari has to sleep in Grand Central. The first thought was Grand Central is so much of a nicer place to sleep than Penn Station or the Port Authority (laughs) where I have had to sleep in the past. And then my second thought was that hearing her on the phone with her mother, her mother's voice, I think, is Amy Heckerling again. She had had a voice cameo in Clueless as the voice of Josh's mother on the phone, and I recognized her voice again, but I didn't come across 
any like trivia bits about it. So maybe that wasn't her, but I'm pretty sure it was. The other things I kind of liked about this movie was it was littered with cameos of like what oh, yeah. like comedians, and it just seemed like she put her friends in here. We get Taylor Negron back. I was so excited to see him pop back up. But like Stephen Wright, like Andy Dick, and like David Spade. I was like, what the hell? Like these guys are just popping up for like a minute, and uh, I was like, that was cool. Like that was nice. Uh, it, the rest of the movie kind of became like who's gonna waltz through the frame next for me you know I was kind of paying more attention to the background from scene to scene I forgot that there was a uh, egg donation storyline in this kind of for three minutes basically and then they kind of drop it until Jason Biggs googles it and is like you probably shouldn't do this and like you know mansplains egg donation the plot line that is maybe not the most over the top but the craziest to me at least in terms of screenwriting in terms of movie making is that they literally save a cat together like the cat gives birth in the shelter vet hospital whatever and they find like the run to the litter on the floor and they revive it and they save it and they nurse it back to health. And for anybody who's listening who doesn't know about Saving the Cat, there's this guy, Blake Snyder, who wrote this book about saving the cat. So the, the gist of Save the Cat is that it doesn't have to be a literal cat, but it can be, it has to be something that your main character does. Like, if you want your character to be likable, it's like an action they do early on that, like, solidifies you on their side. Like, something that you're like, oh, this is a good person. Like, they might be, do, they might do bad things, but at their core, there's someone I can root for. And so it's, the book is called Save the Cat, and it's like this, you know, basically intro to screenwriting book and Tobin assigned it in the screenwriting class I took with him. But like anytime like, somebody saves a literal cat in a movie, I'm just like, oh my God, like how? Like it just felt like it's like a slap in the face. Like to anybody who has read, like, I mean, I am by no means a screenwriter because I took the one class and then just bailed on my screenplay as soon as I finished it. So like, I am not in that world at all. But like anybody who knows anything about that process and like that book, it's like, that is the most basic 101, like, oh, he, they're, they're good people. Like, look what they're doing. Yeah, but that's on purpose. It's not like a coincidence that she used like literally saving a cat, I feel like. I think that's the kind of thing, though, that it's just like in a movie that isn't working for me, that I'm not enjoying, it's stuff like that that I don't give the benefit of the doubt. I hear you. For me, it was actually, I didn't think of that, but now looking at it, it's kind of obvious. To me, it was just like, oh, at least they're like utilizing this animal hospital in some way. And it's not as bad as like iRobot, where Will Smith is like actually scoops up a cat in his arms while he's being chased by a crazy machine and it's like tearing a house apart. It's like, you know, it's a little more I feel like it's kind of more tactful at least in this and it's like a nice scene and everything but yeah it still feels like in the midst of everything else I don't want to say it feels lazy to me necessarily but it's a moment that doesn't necessarily feel earned on behalf of everything else that's been going on at that point like Jason Biggs how the hell does he even know what to freaking do like he's not a med student he's from a farm he has farm skills he doesn't even have an offhand comment about like I had to you know help the cow with a delivery one day I don't you know that but I mean like there's nothing for me like no shorthand to be like how does he know to like save a dying fetus here like and just I don't know it was a leap I couldn't take anyway to begin with Joey so like yeah yeah that makes sense I saw it as like an opportunity for him to see her softer sweeter tender side because I feel like that happens after she's told him that she's a person who like hates everyone and everything you know so like that gives him the opportunity to see like oh she has a, a softer side. Jason Biggs is so weird in this movie. I don't know that he needs to have seen a softer side because he is like smitten by her from the first time that she ices his knee. Oh, I forgot that happened. 
end, yeah. He is hook, line, and sinker from the beginning, even to the point where, like, she could do no wrong in his eyes, even when she shuns him time and again, and, like, he gets word that she's sleeping around, or that she's bailing on him, or that she's doing this or doing that. Like, he doesn't care. Like, he feels not... I don't feel, feel like he's upset at her. It's just, like, if he can't have... Again, entitlement, probably. But if he can't have her, like, he doesn't belong in New York. And, like, he calls Dan Aykroyd, he's like, I don't know if I belong here. And I feel like nothing she does is ever her fault in his eyes. He's just... He's so in love with her. And I don't think that we never need that, like, softer side of saving a kitten, because I feel like she could do no wrong. Even when, like, she bails on their date to go out with Greg Kinnear, it's not, like, the end of the line. You know what I mean? It's just, like, I'm going to win her over in the end or whatever. Yeah, it's... I don't even think there was a scene where someone yelled at Jason Biggs and was like, what's wrong with you? Like, you give people too many chances, this and that, and, like, you're too soft or whatever. Like, you know, when I was like, he never hears what he needs to hear about himself like a lot of like characters need to in movies for them in order to change like I don't feel like he ever changes he just waits for people around him to shift and change like he's just waiting there well no he has to put on like those cooler clothes like he's trying to change but his roommates too like one of his roommates sits him down and is like no one likes you here are all of these things that you can do to make us like you and then he tries to do those things but they're not actual things yeah those guys are asshole yeah I mean that's the problem he's said up to be so unlikable it's almost like in trying to get the audience to like this guy for being so unlikable I don't like him it's like contagious almost where I'm like yeah this guy bothers me like I wish the movie I wish he just like went home to the farm and I could see you know what else is going on in New York City well I don't like that feeling you know but unfortunately that's how I felt so Jason Biggs actually was shooting this concurrently with another movie called Boys and Girls that I don't remember at all that also came out in the year 2000 so he was actually like jumping on a plane from the loser set in toronto to los angeles and back again like shooting these two movies he does seem very like checked out isn't the right word but kind of on autopilot maybe maybe that explains the end too when his hair is so drastically different and he's just like yeah i got a haircut i was like no these are reshoots that's what's happening here i mean (laughs) i mean like he's good in like not that american pie is a good movie or anything but like i feel like he's fine in that like he works in sort of an ensemble in that when he tries to like carry the movie I don't feel like he has the strength yet at this point in in his career because he's still fairly new I felt like at this point like this is still pretty early on in his career and I just don't feel like he has like the chops to really be the leading man type I don't know if that's who he is as an actor necessarily I I think Mina Savari can carry the film on her own I I would be much more interested in like if this focused much more on her I mean I would I would bet money that the like first cut of it did this was a movie that was about her and then got cut into something else entirely i almost wonder if what you said about him doing two movies at once changed the story like maybe it was more about him and then he well, he couldn't be there enough and they had to like change things or maybe like the fact that like they have like okay well we don't have jason these days and they're like well what could we do what could we shoot and they maybe start shooting her and they, they realize that she's got more you know meat to her character's bones like i feel like there's a couple different ways because like, I feel like what we wind up with is like none of the stories are satisfying. Yeah. I think we're kind of all in agreement that like her story could be the best, but it just it, like there's just not enough of her. But there's also not enough of him. And, you know, even if not that their story is good, but there's not enough of the roommates to make their story like worthwhile. Like they're just terrible one dimensional.
original characters like that have no redeeming qualities. They're so weird too. Like so Mona May, who is the costume designer on Clueless that I talked about for a very long time, was also the costume designer on this. And the characters all have like very distinct looks to them but those three in particular have this like bizarre kind of like euro trash style like that's the only way i could think of really to describe it i was thinking like almost this like proto hipster thing or at least like what hipster became i wrote down are these guys metrosexual is that what this is supposed to be because also there's that scene when they're like in the salon and they're all getting their like hair and nails done there were just like a lot of odd choices happening around the three of them and i don't understand any of them i just wish they would tone down a little bit it just feels like this movie it just feels nasty to me you know like it just has like a mean edge to it that i wish was a a little blunter like i mean i understand like it's heavy topics and issues and stuff but then again i also feel like that's not the focus either like they're almost just in there for not a joke per se but like for a little while like the Greg Kinnear stuff it's here and there but then at the end it really goes where it should right where like they live together and then it becomes okay like now that's this is where I feel like it should have gone much earlier and I, I was just that's the other problem like I was just starting to rewrite things in my head yeah but like I said earlier like I saw a lot of kind of heckling touches on this like the kind of intoxication scenes felt very much kind of on a spectrum with her fantasy sequences and stuff like that we've seen a lot of in her previous movies you think yeah yeah i could see that maybe maybe it just maybe i don't maybe i don't remember them as well just because i remember like uh it kind of made me think of when in look who's talking when they were sort of imagining things and it got really trippy at that party yeah and also in the book about clueless that i read there was a quote from her about how she likes glowing colors and like twinkly lights and there was a lot of interesting colored lighting choices both in the dorm room and then also when those shitty guys set up for the party they have a bunch of colored lights in that too i don't know if this is a question either of you can answer because this wasn't the first time that you watched this movie but did either of you when you first saw greg kinnear talking to me in the suvari i thought that he was her dad at first no, no. Maybe just because I just watched Bodied, but like I just feel like the way that he picks on her in class, like very clearly calling her Florence Nightingale, and then like she goes up to him after class, like you could tell that there was something there, but I just thought it was father-daughter. Oh, how innocent. Yeah, right, exactly. Which I think maybe could have been more interesting, but I feel like there's an angle there that like as her father and also their professor, he could like be against Jason Bitt. I don't know. There's like, there's things you could do there, I guess, but I didn't like the movie as it was, and I wanted to try to sort of change things to make it more palatable in one way or another. Uh, the professor's last name is Alcott, the same last name as Bronson Alcott, which was the name of the high school in Clueless. So that was another connection there. I also really liked Mina Suvari's Oh My God, I Love Josh moment, which Cher has in Clueless because she has this like inner monologue going on. (laughs) And then suddenly she realizes, oh my God, I love Josh. But Mina Suvari kind of has a similar experience, but instead of like having an inner monologue, it's just her having kind of memories of all the times that Jason Biggs' character was like nice and sweet or whatever. And she's sitting there while Professor Alcott is getting fitted for a suit and she's wearing this 
ridiculous getup because he's trying to dress her up so he can make her acceptable to bring home to his parents for Thanksgiving. Oh, in her big red jacket? Yeah, and she's sitting there, like, on a couch in this fitting room, and he's standing in front of one of those trifold mirrors. Yeah. And he folds the mirror in to get a better look at himself, and then when he folds it back out again, she's gone. Ooh. And I just thought that that was awesome. I enjoyed that. I didn't that. notice that. I like that, though. Yeah, and that felt very hackerling to me, and I was like, aha. You know, one, one thing that did not feel very hackerling to me was how terrible the music in this movie was. What? I thought the soundtrack was great. Oh, no. Maybe it's, maybe it's just personal taste. It is very 90s, right? Yeah, it's very nostalgic for me. Oh, boy. It did not work for me. And maybe I mean, it was all... I just I made a note that this music is all terrible. Like, it's all so terrible. <laughs> one thing I saw in this, which I thought was really cool, I spied uh, there's just one scene, and I was like, oh, this is cool. I, I, I bet Amy Heckerling did this a whole lot. They go into a bodega, and there's people dressed up for Rocky Horror. Mm-hmm. And then they yeah. go outside, and they're, like, lined up and everything. I was like, oh, that's such an awesome little touch. And I bet that was just her being like, you know, we used to do this. Or people, or just people in Manhattan. If you're out around like 11:30 midnight, you might catch a line of people lined up for Rocky Horror. I thought it was a real shame that they didn't shoot the whole thing in New York because New York is Heckerling's hometown. NYU is her alma mater. Like, I feel like there was like a lot of potential there for us to get more of like her New York. And so I was just kind of like bummed that it was, you know, Uncanny Valley, New York instead. Yeah, it fooled me for the most part. I mean, there's enough actual New York footage for me to go, wow, like, I wonder how much of this was run and gun and how much of this was actual permit and where she was pulling favors from. Right. Or even, like, I feel like there was at least one shot that looked like it might have been archival footage, but I'm not sure if it was that or if they were just using some kind of odd film stock, because a lot of it looked really scratchy and weird to me in a way that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And Joey, I felt like you saying, like, why does this look like this? And just not being able to articulate <laughs> what I meant by that. I actually did notice that, though, Kara, as well, where I was like, shot to shot in some sequences even look different. Yeah. Like, they had shot, you know, the reverses at different time with different cameras even or something or something happened to the footage maybe. But yeah, I was I was aware of of the look. I was like, it doesn't look quite as sharp as some previous films. Can we talk about how Mila Savari's character is named Dora Diamond? And I was like, is she a porn star? Or a superhero, right? Like an X-Men. According to the trivia, or maybe this was in the Wikipedia article, the character of Dora Diamond is in part inspired by Franz Kafka's girlfriend late in his life. So she is, this woman is most famous for being Kafka's final lover, Dora Diamond. She was a Polish woman who seemed actually pretty cool. She was like very politically active and escaped the Nazis and then like had a pretty big role in preserving the Yiddish language after the Holocaust. Make that movie. Right? But she is of course most famous for being with Kafka. Being some dude's girlfriend. But Kafka is mentioned in their English class. So it's like a little kind of wink wink thing there's a bunch of like notable minor characters like Stephen Wright he is such an iconic voice that when he asked for her pantyhose at the club I was just like that's gotta be Stephen Wright like I, I'm not 100% sure what he looks like all the time but I knew the voice and I googled it and it was right but like I just know him from, I mean from a bunch I, I don't really know his stand up but I know him as K-Billy Super Sounds of the 70s he's in Horace and Pete like I, I know him from a lot but I was like oh that's him and then there was that we have Andy Dick briefly and then we have David Spade as a video clerk guy like there's just these people maybe like you know 
people that she admired? Like, do you, Karen, do you have any notes on, like, why they were in here? Did they just want to work with her and she want to work with them? Like, it feels not like stunt casting, but it feels like they're just like, oh, like, I, I love her movies, or maybe they have daughters who love Clueless. I don't know. But, like, it feels like they're just like, you're supposed to recognize them, I think, but maybe not. Maybe, is this before David Spade was David Spade? No, these are cameos. Like, yeah. David Spade was already very much, this is like after David Spade. David Spade was David Spade. Okay. But I, I don't have any uh, intel on that, but the scene featuring David Spade, which was in a video store, was filmed in Toronto's first specialty video store called Review Video. And since the store specialized in uh, foreign language and classical films, other ones, like the whole look of the store had to be changed for them to shoot it in there because it was just like a regular video store. So they wouldn't normally rent Simon Birch or something like that? I guess not. So one of the other trivia points was that Paul's dorm is called Hunt's Hall. Oh, I read this, but I don't know who that is. Like, I know that's somebody, but I don't know. Yeah, so there is an actor named Hunt's Hall who is from New York City, and he was one of the Bowery Boys. Oh, way back. Which was like a film series... The three shitty dudes are, like, very buffoon-like and, I guess, kind of Bowery Boys-esque. I could kind of see that. I was also thinking Three Stooges with those guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, like, the Three Stooges are actually kind of endearing. The third the third Stooge roommate is uh, a background. He's in Alfie's, Alfie Allen's crew in John Wick, Mike. He's one of the background guys just around. Not that he's got, I don't know if he has any lines or whatever, but I think he's probably one of the guys who were with Alfie when he asks John Wick for his car at the gas station, and then things go very poorly. I actually quite like the other two guys in that little crew, and it was like, man, I wish it wasn't these dudes because I love their other work and, and stuff, but... Mm. Everclear, yeah, I love self-loathing rock I can dance to. That made me laugh. Because I, too, love self-loathing rock you can dance to. Plant rock. You can't pass out from beer. Yes, you can. Mm-hmm. You can 100% pass out from beer. I did like uh, her being referred to. It was condescending. I mean, I don't like that she was condescended to, but I like the term of the bridge and tunnel girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you know, anybody who, like, I, I would be a bridge and tunnel guy. Like, I don't, <laughs> I hate paying to get into or out of the city. Like, it's just so expensive, needlessly expensive, that I would absolutely try to do anything I can to not have to go back to New Jersey or New York or wherever she's living. Yeah, and it's just, like, a pain in the ass because, like, the trains stop running at whatever time or they're always, like, unless you're traveling during rush hour it's like the trains are always at weird times and that will be like a six hour stretch where there are no trains going in the direction that you need to go did either of you look up the tagline for this movie i did not nope i'm gonna say what it is it makes no sense to me it's dare to be different what that's what i wrote down what different as in like don't roofie girls and don't sleep with your professor cool yes dare to be different in that way i guess don't have jason biggs hairstyle in this i actually had that hair i mean you and everyone else mike that was a very popular hairstyle very but like i was 13 not going to college (laughs) like (laughs) that's all i got i don't have anything else to say about this movie i'm surprised we talked about it this long yeah i'm out i'm glad that we don't have to watch this i'm never watching this again i can tell you that much was teenage dirtbag written for this movie i'm not sure but they were they had clips of the movie in the music video you know even though it was ever clear like it was kind of cool that like she got another scene with another live band to do yeah something like i thought that was pretty cool oh were you you were you mad about that too when you saw this movie for the first time uh by no means i did write down something a couple more things the first being that there's two art museum scenes in this and we got an art museum scene in european vacation so it was interesting to see that pop up again and they're 
interesting scenes kind of like when you put them next to each other the first one is she goes to the museum of modern art with jason biggs and she kind of is like showing him all of the art and she's clearly very engaged with it and she has a passion for it and she can speak rather eloquently about the art and then the other scene is when she goes to the metropolitan museum with the professor and it's kind of a role reversal where like he's the one who's there to show her around and uh, is like belittling everything that she has to say and so it was just like an interesting juxtaposition of those two things but at the same time both scenes are completely unmemorable and I think like by the time you get to that second art museum scene you've probably already forgotten that there was a first one. Yeah, I think the most memorable scene for me is sort of during their little date montage thing in a second act cabaret, and it's actually Alan Cummings' like performance. Like there was another came. I was like, holy shit! Like that's really that was cool. I wish that was in like a more entertaining movie. I would, I would go watch cabaret now. Yeah, which it's interesting that Cabaret was in this because Amy Heckerling has said about her insistence on using uh, thigh-high socks in, in Clueless in the wardrobe that she's been obsessed with them since she was a little girl and saw Cabaret. Well, also, there's like, been a few little burlesque moments in a couple of her movies in the past. So, like, we've had uh, in Look Who's Talking, Mikey got a little mommy burlesque moment. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> and then in, uh, unfortunately, i got to mention European Vacation for a minute, but there's the one the video gets stolen and becomes a movie but yeah but there are some other kind of interesting gender dynamic things that i saw in this the first one being kind of like fake male allies who say like oh yeah men are terrible i can't believe they do these things i'm a feminist and then going on to attempt to roofie that same woman that he said that to because when i think it's like when he like lures her to the party he's talking about how men are terrible and whatever and then he roofies her so I, it was interesting to see that come up because that's a thing that happens a lot once again just r- real quick uh once again feeding into what mike was saying earlier that just like depicting men as they are like not really pulling any punches mm-hmm. yeah and then the other thing that kind of came up multiple times in the movie is like men lying about mina suvari's character to other people and like painting her as like a very different kind of person than she actually is and that's just a pervasive problem in society <laughs> for the ways that uh, people and men in particular talk about women yeah as we've been recording this, Moonstruck has been on TV on mute because it's on Showtime Showcase, and I am adoring this movie, <laughs> even on mute. This is not the real bad podcast, but a real good suggestion. If you want to, I mean, watch any other movie, but if you want another New York movie, watch Moonstruck. I just saw it for the first time recently, and it's It's excellent. so good. Oh, if you want another New York movie, watch Hackers. That's actually, that's on the list of things that I want to do for Wistful Thinking at some oh, point. Oh, I would love to be on that episode. That was, oof, I love that one. I love that movie. But about New York about Moonstruck because I watched it so recently I realized that there is a character in Moonstruck who played by the guy who plays Frasier's dad on Frasier but much younger but he like multiple times in the movie is just this background character that's on a date with a younger woman and gets water thrown in his face and then like eventually Olympia Dukakis like maybe almost has an emotional affair with him and and she because she's the one she's the only person who will tell him like you're not having any success with these women because they are too young for you it has nothing to do with them it has everything to do with you and I feel like you can see that so clearly about Professor Alcott in this movie yeah 
I mean, Carrie, you are literally describing the move. That scene that is on right oh, now really? as you're talking. <laughs> yes, that is happening. But also of importance to this podcast is that Olympia Dukakis was the mom in Look Who's Talking. So perfectly coalescing here in the end. Carrie, do you have any even notes about Loser? Just some some quotes that I, I thought were interesting. Jason Biggs, after finding out that Professor Alcott has made it very clear to Dora that he does not want a relationship, he says to her, sometimes when someone's telling you something, they're trying to tell you something. That's just a little word of wisdom, words to live by. Oh, God. Professor Alcott says to Dora... After she's been sitting there kind of quietly for a few minutes, and then she says something and he says to her, can you turn down the intensity a notch? I was just admiring how beautiful you looked while being quiet. I wrote that down too. That is a, that's like the, you know, the, the final chapter in the book, essentially. Like that is the... The, we know it's the nail in the coffin, even if she doesn't yet. Yeah. I mean, also the way that he, just the way, I mean, his whole character is terrible and that's mm-hmm. the point of it, but the way that he talks to her about like how she gets tea wrong for him in like three or four different ways, like... Oh, yeah, he treats her like a sex robot slash assistant. Like, she's the help who he can fuck. Yep, that's exactly how he treats her. It's disgusting. I did write down, this guy is such a piece of shit, multiple times. Yeah. One last thing, Mina Suvari's hair. Uh, Amy Heckerling has kind of a trademark of crazy hair, so I appreciated Minu Savari's crazy hair in this. But her hair looks good. And yeah. then, like, Greg Kinnear is like, oh, yeah, we need to get your hair cut. And I was like, no, you don't. Well, because it's just not what an adult would have. And he doesn't want his parents to judge him for dating a woman that's so much younger than he is. Yeah, well, I mean, the hair, a haircut's not going to change that. Yeah. Well, guys, as this as this comes out, it is New Year's Eve, so Happy New Year to both of you. Next year, we have three more episodes of Cinemakers. We have I Could Never Be Your Woman, Vamps, and then the TV show, the Amazon series Red Oaks. So I don't know about these next two movies. I've never seen them. I don't want to be swayed one way or the other. I know Alicia Silverstone comes back at least once. I think just once. Mm-hmm. Paul Rudd, too. And then Red Oaks is a very good series from everything that I've heard. So hopefully we will end on a high note but three more episodes of Cinemakers. We are seven down, three to go. Next, this upcoming Friday, the Friday of this week in four days, Mike and my Tom Tom Club kicks off with Endless Love, the Tom Cruise movie that I know nothing about. Endless Love this Friday. I know about the song, My Endless Love. Better be in the movie, that's all I'm saying. But yes, so this Friday, go check that out. And also, I don't know if we mentioned it on the last time we recorded, because it's been a little bit, but since we last recorded, Nico and his husband Kevo have started a new podcast called HTML, Husbands Talking More or Less, and they are currently going through all of the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But not just talking about the movies, but looking about inclusion and gender and uh, sexuality and like, do you see you in the MCU? So this run of Cinemakers coming to a close shortly-ish, but Mike and I have this new show starting on Friday, and also go check out the HTML series, which is just starting with the MCU, then we'll go on to other things, other media libraries to go there, so check out things, everything at cageclub.me for all things Cage Club Podcast Network, Cinemakers, Kara's show, Wistful Thinking, and her acclaimed spin-off series, What Am I Chewing, and all the shows that me and Mike do, and everything else on our network, go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram, email us at the show cinemakers at cageclub.me and go to patreon.com slash cageclub to throw in a couple shekels and say support us and also be able to control our lives by controlling what we watch a few ducats just go do those things and we'll see you next week for i could never be your woman i'm joey lewandowski i'm mike manzi and i'm cara gail o'regan and we'll see you next week for i could never be your woman right here on cinemakers goodbye goodbye